This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's program... It is seen as a major setback for press freedom. Journalists who have been detained are missing or held hostage worldwide. If you value participatory democracy, if you value an active civil society, then journalism is essential. You are fake news. Sir, go ahead. Can you state categorically that nobody... Journalism under digital siege, surveillance, harassment, online harassment, particularly against women journalists. No to war was the final message broadcast by TV Rain, one of Russia's last independent media outlets. We have a war going on at the moment, which just highlights how important press freedom is. This is a war that was fueled on a completely false narrative, has created a parallel universe that is a a real challenge to what we understand as truth. Hello and welcome to Inside Geneva. In today's programme, the day this podcast first goes out, it's Press Freedom Day. We're going to discuss the challenges faced by journalists today, the pressure on them, the risks they run, and the reasons why it's actually important to honour and respect this profession, my profession, sometimes called the fourth estate. To join me, I'm delighted to have with us today Guilherm Canela. He's head of the Press Freedom Section at UNESCO, Clayton Weimer's Deputy Director of Reporters Without Borders USA, and my colleague here in Geneva, fellow journalist and New York Times contributor, Nick Cumming-Bruce. To begin, like I said, it's Press Freedom Day. What message do we want to convey on this day? William, I'm going to come to you first because it is a day that UNESCO is, is the sponsor of, is deeply involved with. So what message are you putting out? I would say that the sponsor is not UNESCO. I would say, uh, and maybe it seems a little bit a cliche, but I think the sponsors are the peoples of the world. Because although UNESCO started this discussion uh, with many other stakeholders 31 years ago in the in Vinduk Namibia in 1991, it was the United Nations General Assembly that actually approved this idea of celebrating press freedom every year on, on May the 3rd. And this was a tribute to all of you individual journalists, but also to journalism as a key institution for three relevant things, consolidating democracies, protecting and promoting other human rights, aside of the evident press freedom and freedom of expression, and supporting the, the policies that lead for an inclusive and sustainable development. So these is big words, and it's, a, it's an acknowledgement that journalism is, is a central piece of this equation that is Democracy is important, but also protection and promotion of human rights and also sustainable development. So really every May the 3rd, what we want to do is to remind everyone that is involved in protecting and promoting press freedom that without journalism, uh, many, and obviously without journalists, uh, many important aspects of our lives that maybe we don't immediately connect with the work you guys do, Uh, they will be jeopardized. Clayton, let me come to you. Now, your organization really is is defending journalists, promoting the importance of their profession every day. 
your your organization is dedicated to that. Is it important to you that there is a day a year, though, dedicated to journalists? Well, as you say, we're dedicated to it every day. So every day is World Press Freedom Day for RSF, as far as we're concerned. Um, but the importance of having this one day a year really gives us an opportunity to take stock in the situation globally. It's a good reminder to everyone who's not thinking about the issues that confront journalists day in, day out. Uh, and, you know, frankly, it's not the responsibility of each individual to be focused on all of these issues at all times. Everyone has a lot going on in their lives. It's a busy world. Um, and so this really just gives us an opportunity to remind everyone of the value that journalists add to all of our lives. If you value participatory democracy, if you value an active civil society, then journalism is essential. You know, it's all about the the proverbial tree in the forest that no one can hear. If no one is there to report on it, it doesn't really happen. Nick, what about you? I mean, here in Geneva, we have days dedicated to specific things almost every day. There seems to be one. Is it important to you, as a, you're a journalist like me, that we have this day? Well, as a practicing journalist, one tends to take it rather for granted, but I think it is absolutely essential. And we have a war going on at the moment, which just highlights really more than ever just how important press freedom is. You know, this is a war that was fueled on a completely false narrative. It uh, has created a parallel universe that is a, a real challenge to what we understand as truth and needs to be fought. And I was struck, you know, we had a Mayor Vitali Klitschko speaking to the UN earlier this month, and he was saying, you know, what we need in, in Ukraine at the moment um, isn't just tanks and aircraft. In fact, almost more important than either of those, it's media. We need truth. We need that message. And I thought that was quite a powerful statement, and I think it's very apposite at this time. Staff at one of Russia's most prominent independent television stations have resigned live on air. No to war was the final statement made on Rain TV. In its last seconds on the air, the channel broadcast the Swan Lake Ballet performance. It was often played on loop by Soviet TV and radio, either at times of political crisis or after the death of a leader. Guilherme and, and Clayton, that is really an important point, isn't it? Not just that, that it's truth media needed in Ukraine, but we have Russia and, as Nick said, one by one, we have seen the few independent media in Russia shut down. This becomes dangerous, doesn't it, when this is a very big, powerful country, and yet the information that is available to millions of people there is, I mean, one-sided would be, would be the best way to describe it. Guilherme, do you want to comment on that? The, well, in the history of authoritarian regimes, regardless, regardless of specific examples, there are two things that an authoritarian government does when uh, taking the power. They reduce the independence of judges and they censor the press. So authoritarian guys, they don't like rule of law and they don't like free and independent media. Uh, those two things, an independent judge and an independent journalist, they are particularly relevant for what you just mentioned, uh, on the side of the journalists, to bring accountability to these processes, not only to uh, expose corruption, but also to expose human rights violations or environmental crimes. 
But at the same time, we need a process of rule of law. We need an adequate system of regulations that can protect those same rights. And that's where an independent judge can be also a problem for authoritarian governments. So in, the, in these moments uh, where we are, several people are talking about what's going on with our democracies, we can say that those two important pieces of the puzzle of the democracy, uh, rule of law and, and press freedom, are suffering in many parts of the world. So the question is, is this just a hiccup? Or we are really facing a very bad trend that might remain. I don't think anyone has a, a solid response to that. I'm going to come on to the trends or hiccups question in a moment. But Clayton, just staying with the war and Russia, what can we do? What can your organization do to support independent journalism in Russia right now? That was an important question we asked ourselves at the very outset of the war because it was clear that this shooting war has been precipitated by an information war for many years. The Kremlin has been one of the greatest propagators of disinformation, state disinformation in the world. But we have a unique situation in that this is a hot war on European ground where there's going to be much easier access for a lot of journalists, especially freelance journalists on the European continent, in a way that hasn't existed in more recent conflicts like in Syria or in Afghanistan. It's just easier to get there. And so journalists are flooding into the area to cover the war, which is a good thing. The bad thing is that they don't necessarily have the support they need to stay safe. And so we set up the Lviv Press Freedom Center in Western Ukraine, which is become our hub for our support of journalists in Ukraine. Anyone who's covering the conflict can go there and get a bulletproof vest, a, a helmet. We're doing cybersecurity trainings and physical security trainings. We're offering psychological support services. And at the end of the day, it's also just a place to charge your phone and file your story and get some quiet. Oh, um, fantastic. So <laughs> I can say um, that as a journalist. Amazing service. And that's just one thing we're able to do. And the international community has also really stepped up. Uh, there's a tremendous appetite for donating resources and, and money to efforts like this. And we've been very gratified by the support we've received for the Lviv Press Freedom Center. The next step of this is supporting Russian journalists who are just as much the victims of this conflict because they have been forced out of their jobs. They're unable to do their jobs authentically or honestly. Their organizations are being shut down. They're the targets of harassment, jailing, beatings. Uh, so literally thousands of journalists are either in exile already or trying to get out of Russia. Uh, and so we're working with them also on an individual level to help facilitate that. And the next step there is how do we keep them working? How do we set up a sort of Russian journalism in exile? Uh, and we are in the development stages of that program as well. And so what can people out there do to support journalists is just keep reading, keep watching, keep subscribing, don't look away. You know, one thing that Vladimir Putin is going to count on is complacency. Authoritarians everywhere are always counting on our complacency, and we can't allow it to happen. Nick, do you want to come in there? I mean, one of the things I thought was quite interesting that Clayton said was that, you know, there has been this huge amounts of propaganda. And you and I, we, we sit in Geneva, and we are listening to reports from different NGOs, from UN aid agencies, and so on. I remember this from the war in Syria, and it seems to be even bigger now that there is massive, massive, massive amounts of claim and counterclaim on social media, which means despite the fact that social media was supposed to be a liberator 
in terms of access to information. It becomes incredibly hard to get at what's actually happening. Well, I think that's certainly true. I mean, social media, as we all know, is a, is a very much a double-edged sword um, in terms of being a platform for reliable information. It's also the platform for massive disinformation, as Clayton has, has alluded. And I think all that one can really say is that it's going to take time for us to really get a rational, balanced picture of some of the events that are unfolding. I mean, and that's been true in every every conflict. There are certain indisputable facts here. It's clear Russia invaded. It's clear there are bombardments that have inflicted massive damage to civilians and civilian property. It's clear that there are war crimes being committed. But the fear that has been generated by Russia's actions and by the kind of rhetoric coming out of the Kremlin has also tended to drown out, if you like, some of the legitimate questions that could be being asked about events that are going on in Bucha, in other locations. And it's going to take a long time before we get really balanced, impartial facts of those events as a result of the investigations that are being launched now. With so much information living online, new issues arise. Misinformation, disinformation. Pro-Russia social media accounts are using false claims about so-called crisis actors to try to get people to doubt the credibility of important, accurate media reporting on what's going on in Ukraine. President Donald J. Trump said it, who has been totally vindicated by the lies of the mainstream media now exposed. William, is that something that you at UNESCO are conscious of, that journalists like Nick and I, you know, we get called the mainstream media, and it's never praise when we get called that. We sometimes get called legacy media, where people might as well call us dinosaurs. But what we learned was we check our facts, we have two sources, we go to where the news is happening and see for ourselves, it takes a bit longer. Yet somehow people don't seem to respect this aspect, what goes into a properly sourced, properly fact-based piece of journalism. Yes, it's true. I mean, I sometimes this idea that what we call the political freedoms, um, like press freedom, the only thing you need for them is not the government intervening and they will flourish. It's not true because professional journalism requires resources and, uh, and lots of resources because all what you are mentioning, even from a purely logistical point of view, requires travel, requires uh, security, requires good professionals that should have been constantly updating themselves on what's, whatever is going on. So pure fact here is that uh, for this quality and professional journalism to strive, to survive, to keep existing, is absolutely fundamental that this, what UNESCO is be calling this public good, it should be funded. And the question is how to fund it without losing editorial independence. And that's not a very easy equation because uh, sometimes or many times the funding comes with strings attached. Uh, but you are right. Now, that said, uh, I think we also need to look into the good news. Some fantastic things have happened in the last uh, 10 years or five years. Uh, this issue of the, the so-called transboundary journalism, stories like Panama Papers, is really interesting good news in this environment. So there are innovative things happening and bringing into the light of the day very, very interesting 
and important things from a local perspective as well. Uh, during the pandemic, we saw that, for instance, UNESCO had a program that involved the capacity building of 30,000 journalists and media workers from 150 countries to deal with the issues of the pandemic. Vaccines. Should we use masks or shouldn't we use masks? All those kind of things. And I was fascinated by the interest of community radio journalists in joining those programs to understand what they can do better. So the good news is that journalism is still out there, very vibrant, trying to do the things better. Clayton, I think you did want to come in there, didn't you? Yes. Uh, there are a few very good points there. First, the question of resources in journalism. Uh, if you look at the countries that consistently perform at the top of RSF's index on press freedom, one thing they all have in common is a robust public funding structure for media. And it's, you know, it's very important to make the distinction between state funding for media and state control of media, on the other hand. Control of media is what we see in Russia, where media organizations are nothing more than mouthpieces for the regime. When you have public funding, however, that with no strings attached, you allow independent media to flourish. Now, to your point about how authentic journalism kind of suffers reputationally, despite the fact that it takes the hard work of checking your facts and double sourcing uh, anything that you're claiming uh, or printing retractions. We do need to come up with a regime that gives a competitive advantage to authentic journalism against, for lack of a better term, fake news, against disinformation. And if I can plug the RSF solution here, uh, we created uh, what's what we call the Journalism Trust Initiative, which essentially just creates the metrics that codify what authentic journalism means. So the, the metaphor I always use is when you go to the store and you want to buy a, a refrigerator or a microwave, you can take for granted that it's going to comply with international standards of safety and it's going to work in short. No such thing exists for journalism. There is no set of metrics that establishes what authentic journalism is. And so this is as simple as a, a survey that media organizations can fill out themselves that says, yes, we print retractions when we learn that we got it wrong. Yes, we double check that our quotes are accurate. Yes, we double source all the facts that we claim. All the things that good journalists are already doing anyway. And what this allows is then for, say, a government that wants to issue public funding for media, they can use this as the, the metric by which they, they score any organizations against. The dream would be to incorporate it into digital platforms algorithms so that Facebook and Twitter and Google are giving a competitive advantage to authentic journalists. Your newsfeed will start prioritizing good journalism against the fake news or the clickbait or the disinformation that's coming from state actors. Nick, that would be a real dream, wouldn't it? That would mean that on all of the social media platforms that many journalists like you and I would argue have, have led to downsizing of the journalism profession. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the big questions going forward, though, is exactly how social media platforms are, are going to be regulated. We now have Elon Musk a man with $44 billion in his back pocket, taking control of one of the biggest platforms for information distribution in, in the world. And and the one most used by journalists and it, as well. It, it, it's a frightening example of how a very small group of corporate executives have established this hold over platforms that shape the opinions of billions of people in the world. And I don't think 
we've got a handle yet at all on the, the balance between freedom of speech, freedom of media, and regulating these kinds of platforms. It's quite possible that Elon Musk, in his so-called uh, desire to promote freedom of speech, will empower people who are going to propagate misinformation and the kinds of things that we should be combating. It's in his power to decide this. And so we need, I think, a lot more thinking and a lot more action to kind of figure out how to deal with those. Um, the European Union has, has taken a lead with its Digital Services Act. I don't know if they'll have the power to enforce it, but it's, it's providing an example of some of the issues that need to be considered uh, more proactively, I think, by many more governments. Guillermo and Clayton, I saw you both nodding there. And this brings me now to what we were talking about earlier, you know, the, the respect for traditional journalism, mainstream media, whether it's eroding, is that a trend or is it a hiccup? Because we talked about repressive regimes and the war in Ukraine, but we have seen in developed democracies in the last few years real aggression towards reputable journalists. At some point, a handful of supporters got tired of our debate questions. That's when things turned ugly, with this woman calling us, the media, vultures and cowards. Guilherme, this, this did happen in the United States, for example. Yes, indeed. In one of our World Trends reports on freedom of expression, uh, we are already, as UNESCO, warning on the problem of this narrative of political leaders against journalism, against press freedom. So with labels like all the press is fake news or all the press is corrupt or all the press is an enemy of the people, and so on and so forth. There are several you can pick from different authoritarian or populists or almost authoritarian leaders here and there. And obviously, this kind of narrative can lead to violence, to actual violence. So this is uh, very much problematic in, in, in undermining the role of journalism as, and press freedom as essential institutions of a democratic society, which doesn't mean that journalism and the work of journalists can't be criticized. Of course it can. It is part of the scrutiny of all the different players. But these uh, should be done also as good journalism is done, uh, with the specific facts, the specific arguments, and not putting all the journalism as part of a problem, which is a clear strategy to undermine this particular element. So, but I think it's important to celebrate some of the victories we had, because otherwise it's very difficult to, to separate what are the things we need to reinforce, what are the things that are really new trends for the good or for the bad. So I will give you just one example that for me is very compelling in, in showing how we have evolved in a positive way in the last 30 years. 30 years ago, we had in this planet only 12 countries with freedom of information laws. It's very important for the work for, of journalists, but of the, the, the right of the entire society to demand information to their government. Now we have 132 countries plus with this kind of legislations. This is a very interesting development in terms of legal frameworks. Now, we know legal frameworks is just the first step for a big change. They need to be implemented. They need to to actually pass the test of it's just a law or is actually something that is changing. 
But this is this example is to show that that we have tried a lot. We all of us dealing with freedom of expression in the last 30 years to change um, the trend that was very negative 30 years ago to a positive trend. So there is some positive there. I take that. Clayton, do you think that in the United States that the attitude towards journalists has improved now that the purveyor of the term fake news is no longer in the White House? I, uh, you know, obviously we are better off with a president who doesn't call journalists the enemy of the people. But I am cautious to say that the situation itself has improved, even if it has improved rhetorically. I kind of see the erosion in trust in journalism as part of a larger erosion in trust of elite institutions at large. It, it's not a problem unique to journalism, It's or as you put it, legacy uh, media institutions. That may be escaping uh, the purview of this call a little bit, but I, I, I think it's important to contextualize it. I also think it's important to remember that the erosion of trust itself is a tactic of propagandists. The role of propaganda is not necessarily to make you believe something that isn't true. It's to make you believe that nothing is true or to not know what is true. So when you see Russian disinformation that is so obviously far-fetched and impossible to believe, the point is not necessarily to make you believe it. It's to make you question everything and in the end, believe nothing. I regret to say that I think the tactic has been very successful in the United States, not just from foreign state actors, but also from corporations who want to uh, suppress reporting on climate change, for example. Nick, do you want to come in there? I mean, before we started recording, Nick and I were talking and we kind of agreed that in some ways, despite the improvements that you've mentioned, Guilherme, that it is harder to be a journalist now than when we, we started out. Well, I, I actually liked hearing Guillaume's positive notes that he sounded. I find that quite reassuring because in many aspects, the, the perspectives are otherwise so bleak. I mean, you know, it's bleak because we're not just talking about authoritative regimes. So that's really not a new issue. The new issue is the extent to which media has been undermined within so-called liberal democracies. Uh, let's not forget that Almost as many journalists have been killed in Mexico this year as in Ukraine. Let's not forget that the BBC's chief political reporter goes to conferences of the major political parties in the United Kingdom with protection. I mean, it's extraordinary. And I think we need to try and see some way in which the fundamental guarantees of, of media security and freedom are upheld and promoted. I think we need more institutional mechanisms for doing that. The Human Rights Council has a special rapporteur on freedom of speech, which nominally covers the press, but it's an extremely broad mandate. So I, I think we need more mechanisms of that sort that have a deliberate focus on the situation of the press. The Nobel Prize that was awarded to journalists in December, that was a great thing, but that was the first one, I think, since I think it was 1935. So, you know, we need to find, I think, ways to get the important work that media done acknowledged in a formal way and to have some mechanisms for um, upholding media rights and holding to account those who, who challenge them. 
Okay, on that note, we are really at the end of the program. I'm going to ask William and Clayton, though, just for a couple of final words, just to bring us back to the topic. It's Press Freedom Day, but it's also about the safety of journalists. We demand journalists be able to do their jobs free from intimidation and threat. Stefan, we're shooting at you. We're press! DW's correspondent, Stefan Zimans, uh, who you see here, was shot at with rubber bullets. Tonight, more bloodshed in Mexico. Another journalist killed this week in the country. Five reporters have now been killed there less than two months into the new year. We demand journalists aren't treated as criminals. We demand. We demand. We demand press freedom. Both UNESCO and Reporters Without Borders, you offer advice and support to journalists who may be working in very, very difficult, dangerous conditions. So, William and Clayton, I'm just going to give you each a little chance for any journalists who might be listening who are in difficult situations. Where can a journalist turn? William, I'll come to you first. Sure. Well, so today is the World Press Freedom Day, and the topic that actually UNESCO is inviting everyone to discuss is journalism under digital siege. Uh, because we are not only under siege, we are also under a digital siege. So the, the different online challenges for the safety of journalists, surveillance, harassment, online harassment, particularly against women journalists, doxing, etc., and so on and so forth, is part of this equation. So just to say that if journalists uh, and journalists are experiencing those problems, for sure they should uh, try to come to us, to United Nations system, UNESCO and also, as Nick mentioned, the Special Rapporteur, and at least we can try to convey those messages to the relevant stakeholders that might help. Clayton. At an individual level, I would encourage any journalist who needs assistance to contact us. You know, there are a number of things we can do for individual journalists, whether it's help with a relocation or an exfiltration. We're working on that sort of thing all the time. You can go to our website, rsf.org. And if you click at the very top where it says helping journalists, there are a lot of resources there and information on how to reach out to us. Uh, As I said, if you're covering the conflict in Ukraine, please come visit the Press Freedom Center in Lviv. And then on a broader note, and I think Guillermo will uh, attest to this as well, we need to work on ending the culture of impunity that governments seem to enjoy when it comes to targeting and harassing journalists. And when we can change this culture, it becomes safer for every journalist working everywhere in the world. Okay, well, thank you all very much, Nick Cumming-Bruce, Guilherme Canela, and Clayton Weimers. This has been Inside Geneva. Just a, a final word from me on Press Freedom Day, maybe to the kind of people Nick and I talk to in Geneva or in Switzerland or in London, the United States. Respect us. We are not your public relations officers. We will not spin your spin, but neither are we your mortal enemies determined to find something shameful and out to get you. We are there to report the story in a balanced and truthful way. So work with us, be respectful, and the world will be a better place for everyone. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swiss Info. You can hear more by going to our website, swissinfo.ch, including several episodes which have charted our path through the pandemic over the last year. We explore other key humanitarian challenges too, 
from the future of the United Nations to the war in Syria to a look at the history behind the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines. And, of course, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time. (laughs) 